Just a quick reminder that I do now have a second podcast called Track Nerds, where I have guests on to discuss travel, exercise, and movies and TV. Check it out. Okay, enjoy the show. I wanted to start by discussing or asking you, what is Arabia? <laughs> like, oh, I, I, I have, I have what I think is the answer, but I wanted to kind of spring that on you. We got Lawrence of Arabia this week, so, so define Arabia for me if you can. I would say it's basically a collection of well, it's a it's a land area uh, as well as you know the refers to the people that live there, and it's basically Syria. Uh, Iraq, and then the Arabian Peninsula, which is like Saudi Arabia, uh, Yemen, Oman, Qatar, Bahrain. And so basically everything like south of Turkey, east of Egypt, and west of uh, Iran. And, and that would appear to be uh, basically correct from what I was looking up just now. I did want to draw the distinction that Turks and Iranians would not be considered Arabs, which... We know, right. but it's unfortunately not super common knowledge. And there doesn't seem to be a hard and fast definition for Arabia. And when I was Googling, Googling it just now, it basically seems to mostly refer to the actual Arabian Peninsula, which is basically Saudi Arabia and the few countries that are on that actual peninsula. But for the purposes of Lawrence of Arabia's nickname, I think it kind of just refers to the entire Arab world, which is basically any country that predominantly speaks Arabic, which actually would technically even go beyond into North Africa as well as everything you said. And I'm trying to figure out to what extent it is, is, is it actually racial? Because if you think a lot of the North Africans, and I know they're maybe not as, as dark as, you know, what we think of as traditional. Oh, man, I'm, I'm digging right here. <laughs> how, do, how do I say how do I say North Africans aren't as black? I don't know. That's no, I, I know what you mean, though, because, like, you know, you think of, like, a like someone who's Libyan or, like, Algerian or Egyptian, you know. Right, they're definitely not, they're definitely not Nigerian. Exactly, yeah. Um, but as far as uh, the, the genetic backgrounds of those areas, I don't, I don't really uh, fully understand. I mean, it, kind of, it almost seemed like, too, like, Iran is, is Persians. That's kind of the, that ethnicity right. or ethnic group. Turkey yes. is Turks. But... Arab seems to be a larger swath and that I don't think the people of yeah. Saudi Arabia and the people of Morocco are genetically super similar like those other groups are. Right. Which is one of the reasons why there's so much, you know, so much violence was caused or came about because of what we're going to get into today. Mm -hmm with the Sykes-Pico agreement where they basically just drew lines and said, all right, these are your borders now. Like, this is what your country is, you know, because it, it's, it's such a huge area. And, you know, there's so many different religious differences, cultural differences, um, even like linguistic differences. So in the language of Arabic, you know, there's what they call MSA, which is modern standard Arabic. That's like if you're watching the news, it'd be an MSA. But like someone from Iraq essentially speaks an entirely different language oh, wow. than someone from, let's say, Egypt. Yeah, it's it's all considered Arab or Arabic, but it's, you know, there's a lot of a lot of differences between the people in these in that region of the world. Which I think they did a good job of showing. In yes, the movie. and actually, then real quick, real quick too. Then since since you're sitting in Afghanistan right now, so are the Afghani people part of another kind of uh, ethnic subgroup, or are they just Afghan? So someone from Afghanistan would be an Afghan, but like you know, culturally, there's you have there's a, a lot of different groups of people living in Afghanistan. You have Pashtuns, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, uh, Tajiks. Uh, you know, Uzbeks. Okay, and I've, and I've actually heard of Persians. Yeah, okay, okay, that makes sense. So it's it's uh, not uh, not as monolithic. Again, I always think of, and again, obviously, I know people from all over live all over. But again, I do think of Turkey as predominantly Turkish, and I do think of Iran as predominantly Persian. But Afghanistan right. is maybe a little more ethnically diverse with different tribal groups. Okay. Yeah, which is why, you know, depending on where you go, you know, some people speak Farsi, some speak Dari, some speak Pashtun, some speak Urdu. Like, it, it just, it depends. Okay, okay. Um, 
there's yeah, there's there's a lot more uh, variety. So I did want before we even get to the movie today. I actually wanted to start, and we we talked a little bit about the Ottoman Empire last week, and I wanted to kind of start there. And so this is the okay. third time I'd seen Lawrence of Arabia, and but doing it. God, it's so good. <laughs> yes, and uh, watching it this time with obviously a little bit of an eye toward the actual history made me kind of realize to what extent the story is largely about the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and just all the varying parties at play uh, and trying to almost basically get theirs as this thousand-year-old empire comes to an end. So I pulled up a map basically of the Ottoman Empire at its height, which... Uh, is pretty extensive. So obviously the Ottoman Empire, you know, they took over for the Byzantine Empire, and both of those empires were centered around Constantinople, now Istanbul, and they kind of spread out from there. At, at its peak, they basically controlled all of uh, Turkey slash Anatolia, of course, and kind of going down into what we're calling Arabia and Egypt, and then also significantly up into southeastern Europe. And that actually ties into when we talked about, you know, a year ago, with Dracula and you know, they were butting heads with Hungary and Wallachia right there. That was the Ottoman empire that Vlad Tepes was even conflicting with. So a lot started going on during world war one with the Ottoman empire allying itself with Germany and its allies against Britain, France and that side of things. And then basically as world war one started to not go in their favor, it was just kind of a hot mess of people trying to basically all these back deals, which you mentioned the, the Sykes Pico deal and just basically all the different factions planning ahead during the war and what was going to happen after and all these deals and sub deals. And then the big thing that then Lawrence Arabia deals with is the Arab revolt. So again, the Ottoman Empire controlled by the Turks obviously included tons and tons of Arabs who were already revolting in the middle of World War One to kind of establish their own autonomous control over something, regardless of how the war itself turned out. So this was complicated to say the least and we are not going to be able to dissect it completely but i at least wanted to kind of just let everybody know what we're dealing with here yeah and the uh the interesting thing you know when you're reading about this kind of stuff when you are learning about history is things sometimes just kind of line up in the right way so you know that the arab uprising for instance was not necessarily contingent upon world correct, war one happening like it just kind of like happened to happen at the same similar time similar with what we're going to deal with with russia here in a week or two exactly and you know the british kind of saw it as a way of like oh okay these guys are uprising against the turks you know my enemy's enemy is my friend type of deal uh, but they didn't really i mean yeah they helped them but it was only for their own interest right. they didn't really care like the the general says at the beginning of the movie, you know, this is a sideshow of a sideshow. Oh, great. Perfect phrase. Yeah. They didn't even necessarily care about, you know, the entire Eastern Front. They just wanted to keep, you know, the Ottoman Empire occupied in the desert so they didn't have to deal with them in Europe. But yeah, it was just, it was, it's one of those things where it's, uh, with Gallipoli campaign being such a failure by the British, they were then worried that the Turks were going to uh, advance, maybe, you know, be more more of a help to the Germans and the uh, the Austro-Hungarian army in Europe so they wanted to keep them kind of bogged down in the in the Middle East which is why they you know supported Faisal and the the Arab uprising you know so that they could uh, basically wage a guerrilla right. war in the desert against the Turks and keep yes. them occupied and the only reason the Arabs helped them is because they said, all right, well, we'll, you know, we'll help you out. We'll, you know, harass the Turks for you. But when this is all over, we want our, you know, we want self-rule. We want our own uh, Arab state and we don't want it to be, we want it to be free of any European intervention. And uh, very famously, uh, the British said, yeah, that sounds yeah, great. All, yeah, that sounds board. totally fair. Yeah. We'll We'll do it for sure. Yep. And then uh, and then they did. <laughs> right. And much to much to Lawrence's consternation, because both in the movie and then in real life, and obviously we'll get to all this, he seemed to earnestly support their desire to be autonomous and thought he and he actually was full, I guess, foolish enough to believe that the British were actually acting in good faith. And he himself felt betrayed when that was uh, revealed to not be the case. So that's that is some, well, some of that, that more was... in the movie than in real life. 
some of that is made up for the movie. Right. Some of okay. that is true. true. So he 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 definitely did support an Arab state. Like he wanted them to have uh, independence. He wanted them to be free from a- any rule, British, French, uh, Ottoman, or otherwise. But he totally knew about it, and he you know he he definitely knew about the Sykes Pico agreement okay. um, beforehand, and did not. He he didn't pass that information on to uh, to Faisal or any of the Arabs, you know, which I'm and can't necessarily fault him for that. I mean, he he was a British officer, but that that is one thing that uh, you know that is fictionalized in the movie that is okay, not okay not accurate to to. Real so life. getting to the movie and let's go ahead and talk about the movie itself first. I mean, as, as far as even accolades here too. So obviously. Even if you've never seen it, almost everybody's heard of the film Lawrence of Arabia and just kind of knows Desert Epic if you don't know anything else. And right. I would say, and I kind of get the feeling that, that you enjoy this even more than me. And I, and I do like the movie, but it's just, I would not consider it one of my favorite movies of all time. I mean, it's it's definitely solid. And I think it's one, too, that was probably just, not that it doesn't hold up, but that its impact of the scale of it would have just been far more impressive in 1962 or 1963 than it can ever be today. And the cinematography is amazing and the epic scale is amazing. But I feel like watching it with a modern sensibility, I guess I'm ultimately less impressed and it is kind of slow. But the fact that so much of it is accurate and it is still really good. I'm not saying I dislike it. I'm just saying I don't consider it anywhere near one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, I I just I really like it because it's so it's so big. I mean, it's like the the, the best way that I can describe it. You know, is it big cinematography, yes. big performance from Peter yes. O'Toole, big action sequences. Obviously, big three hour and forty five minute <laughs> runtime. But yeah, it's just you know, it's it's a it's a monster. True. No, yeah, I I, I do definitely enjoy it. And there is there's just something about like I I even kind of had to stop and just kind of enjoy it because the pace is so deliberate. I mean, when you have the overture and then the you know the on track or the intermission, you know, halfway through where it's just kind of cuts to black and it's just music for a little bit and it's just it's an event. And I do kind of wish they had more of that nowadays where you would go to the theater, have an intermission and have this immersive big experience. And now I think, honestly, I think a lot of it is the studios are a lot of, under a lot of pressure to keep run times short so the movie can be shown more times within a day, which means a theater can in turn sell more tickets. And the reason something like right. Endgame gets away with the longer runtime is it's such a draw, they don't have to worry about getting more showtimes in because they're still going to get theirs and they're going to sell out more shows and they're going to be able to keep it in theaters longer. They can basically forgive the sh- longer runtime because of what's on the other end. But a movie that didn't have a pre-existing audience, like again, obviously, Lawrence of Arabia is not a sequel. It's not part of a series. It's a standalone epic that you would just never see anything like that again, probably, where it comes out like that with that kind of uh, runtime because of the political and financial pressures that exist today in Hollywood. Yeah. So yes, uh, Lawrence Arabia was the best picture of 1962. It was nominated for, what's my, what's my count here? Is it like 11? 1, 2, 3, 4. 10. 10 nominated seven yes. wins so yeah uh i believe david david lean won as director that year too correct yeah he? david lean for director and we're going to be actually dealing with uh david lean quite a bit basically uh yes look we the exact are schedule but very here recently uh, this season we're going to get into a, a lot more david lean so with with uh dr yep. Spago and i forget if we have an episode on bridge of the river Kwai, but he is both of those big epics and i was thinking actually let me click on him i was thinking there's another another big david lean one well, the he he made movie adaptations for Great Expectations and oh, Oliver yes, Twist. Okay. I wrote those down as as ones that people have probably seen that they didn't necessarily know was directed by David Lean. But um, and I mean, and what a year in movies! Uh, I think the only reason Peter O'Toole didn't win Best Actor in 1962 is because uh, Gregory Peck won for uh, oh, To Kill a Mockingbird as Atticus right. Fitch. So just, I mean, two, you know, massive, massive, super influential classic performances. And they were just, you know, just happened to be the same Yeah, that's year. funny because I, I did see it just now. They're like, oh, he didn't win? How do you not win? Because it's, again, it, it is a heck of a performance. Yeah, that's yeah. how <laughs> Gregory Peck did yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird <laughs> the same year. So in the score, it's another one of those movies that even if you haven't seen the movie, you've probably heard the music which we're not going to attempt to play here and worry about copyright and all that <laughs> stuff. But yes, it's just, 
if you think epic movies, you can't not think of Lawrence of Arabia. And it actually said, too, do you notice it said introducing Peter O'Toole at the beginning, which I thought was kind of neat. And I don't think it was necessarily his first film and pulled out of here too. No, I think it was, I think it was his first big one, though, because he was a stage actor primarily. And that's right? what I like Yeah, he's classically trained British actor kind of guy. Yeah, it looks like he has a few movie roles before then, but they're kind of... Oh, like he's third building something. I think they used. The, I mean, they don't really. It's not something they really use super uh, prevalently nowadays with the whole introducing credits with movies, where you, in theory, it's you know, a person's first film or first major role. I, I mean, I kind of remember like uh, Robin Wright got hers in A Princess Bride, where it's introducing yeah. Robin Wright. So it's just kind of them claiming the actor as, as their debut i guess but again peter too did have previous credits but this, is, this does appear to be his first lead and he was about uh, 30 years old it looks like when they made the film and uh, that's the one too peter o'toole has obviously shown up previously on our list as king henry the second of england in beckett and lion and winter and we will get to him again this season because he's also in the last emperor and yes. yeah, just very, very good actor. So let's uh, let's get into the film itself. And I was gonna say before we before we do that, since the movie starts off with T. E. Lawrence kind of already in Egypt, you know, and obviously World War One has already been going on for a couple of years yes. at that point. I just wanted to give a, a little background on like the early life of T. Oh, e. Lawrence because yes. this is this movie is like it's you know, just a couple years in the life of like one of the most extraordinary, interesting people probably ever. Okay, yes, I mean, this ahead. dude led a life. Basically he was like a, a real life James Bond slash Indiana Jones combo, True. you know, super smart guy. When he was going to Oxford in, in 1909 uh, at the age of 19, he walked a thousand miles across Syria by himself to study crusader castles Mm. and you know and their construction and wrote a dissertation about it and that's where he you know kind of fell in love with uh you know arab culture then uh he ended up getting a job offer at a uh, an archaeologist dig in in syria at a place called karkemish and then he was there when world war one broke out and the british intelligence basically approached him and asked if he would use his cover as as an archaeologist there to uh, spy on the construction of a railway that was supposed to go from Baghdad to Berlin uh, that was going to transport oil. And then also he was surveying uh, the Negev Desert because the British didn't have very many maps of it. And so if they were going to fight a war uh, against the Ottoman Empire in the Negev Desert, they wanted maps. So he was spying and basically started off as Indiana Jones, a, an, an archaeologist, you know, spying on on uh, on the Germans and on the uh, on the Ottomans there. And then uh, it wasn't until later on in the war that he actually got an official uh, military position in Cairo working for the Arab Bureau. Which the movie actually didn't do a good enough job illustrating because they basically just kind of see him as this smart, cocky layabout who doesn't get along well along with authority. And they don't actually really mention much of his uh, kind of badass past heading into this whole story. Right. He had already had, you know, five or six years well, I, get, I think he's 27. I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. At the time of the movie. So eight eight years. So basically he had eight years of experience in Syria, in the uh, Arabian Peninsula uh, by the time the, the movie started. But they don't really, yeah, they, they, they don't really hash it out in the movie, like how he, you know, came to understand all this stuff about, you know, Arab right. culture. Right. We, we, we just knew it was, he was a good student, that he was very well learned, almost, right. almost to the point where even... Uh, higher ranking officers almost kind of like thought he was a bit of a snob or something that he was just too smart for his own good kind of guy. And yeah. so, yeah, I was just saying, despite this long runtime, the story is pretty straightforward despite everything we just kind of said, just because there's, there's not a lot of events because every scene takes so much time, honestly, very similar to what we talked about with battleship Potemkin, basically having three scenes. So Lawrence right. Arabia also fairly similarly, just kind of has 
a few main sections that can kind of be concisely mentioned and they just kind of just take their time with everything. So yes, after he kind of gets this assignment, and actually I'm not sure where he first ends up in the desert, but basically he is seeking out uh, Prince Faisal and has a, a guide helping him do that. And I don't know exactly where they are here. I'm guessing they're in roughly Syria somewhere or what will become Syria. So he starts off in Cairo and the first place that he goes when he meets when he meets Faisal for the first time with that the other British officer yes. is actually in what is now uh, modern day uh, Saudi Arabia. Oh. Um, so they, they talk about Yanbu or Yanbu, which is a uh, coast city on the eastern part of the Red Sea, so the, the west coast of, of Saudi Arabia. So basically you go from Medina, which is in Saudi Arabia, you go basically straight west from there to the coast and you end up at Yanbu um, and they're just outside of Yanbu at a place called Wadi Safra is the place that he first uh, runs into Faisal and, and his guys. Okay so and again not to kind of jump around here too much here so when they go to Aqaba though Aqaba is northwest of that so they do they kind of buy a so lot. Do they kind of loop around to attack uh, Aqaba from the north which they don't they maybe just it's didn't like, buy that. It's, it's kind of kind of from the from oh, the, the side, more, uh, more the side. From the yeah, so they're east, so they ended up to the east of. So if, if you yeah, I, yeah, I map, got a map pulled can, up right here. Okay, so if, if you zoom in to Aqaba, if you go just to the east of that, there's a place called Wadi Rum that they actually call by name in the movie. Okay, when they meet, uh, they meet the guy and, and his kid where they're on horses. Yes, yes. The guy from the from the uh, who, who tries to kick them uh, out of his oh his yeah the Anthony Quinn's character yes so he says you know welcome to Wadi Rum and you can see that on the map uh, if you're if you're looking at a map which it's just to the east of of Aqaba which if you're also looking at the same map you'll notice is like two hundred miles away from let's, uh, let's come back to that because i want to I, we, but, yeah we're, we're yeah so a bit, but. <laughs> uh, and i because i do want to kind of uh, lay out the geography there a, a little bit because i do think it's interesting <laughs> as much as it's interesting to talk about geography on a podcast but uh hey it's interesting yeah us. we're having a great time so <laughs> so so in the film so it has him with his guide uh early on and i actually made a, a couple of notes here so uh, Lawrence definitely prides himself on being one with the desert, and he and he's definitely has an, shares an affinity and affection for uh, the Arab people, and kind of wants to be able to do the things that they can do. And they specifically talk about the the Bedouins, and there's the various Bedouin tribes that don't necessarily get along, but they're all kind of this under this uh, Arab uh, umbrella. Also, then within the Ottoman Empire, ran by the Turks. So again, it is complicated. But uh, the note I made is his guide is being very judicious with his water, and basically they're getting ready to head head into a, a stretch. So he tells Lawrence, "You can, you know, take a drink now, one cup." And then Lawrence pours that cup and sees that his guide isn't going to drink any water. He's like, "Well, you're not drinking." And well, no, I'm I'm better when I don't need to. I, I'm good. So Lawrence pours it uh, back into his canteen and says, like, I will drink when you drink. Just kind of trying, like, hey, if you can do it, I can do it. But then my, my note here was, uh, don't brag about poor hydration. <laughs> 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 I was like, this is actually very irresponsible, Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't, you don't deprive yourself of water to show off. <laughs> the- the, the coach yes. to you, just like steam yes. coming out of I was of like, ears. this is not okay. Your body cannot adapt to a lack of water. Like that's... <laughs> Dehydration is not cool. <laughs> yeah, come on, kids. You're setting a bad yes. example. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, uh, and then also, so they do stop at a well later, shortly after this. And I actually had just seen a YouTube video within the last couple of weeks where I was talking about, uh, I think it's, it was the Cinefix channel. And it was okay, yes. which I'm only actually. I know exactly. Yeah. I know exactly. Nice. What you're okay, about. so and I'm only kind of I'm only peripherally aware of this channel. I need to start watching more of their stuff. But they did like the top ten movie introductions of all time, and I forget where it was on the list. It actually might have been like number two or something. Like it was pretty high up there. And it was uh, the actor Omar Sharif's introduction coming up here in the movie. So when they're at the well, Lawrence and his guide. They see off in the distance, they start seeing just like the smoke billowing up, which kind of implies someone's moving this way just because the way the sand's moving, it has to have been disrupted by 
human. There's not really any other way it would happen. And then just slowly, slowly, slowly see this figure uh, slowly emerging. They're kind of not sure who it is. You know, if it's one person, if it's a lot, if who it is, and they're trying to figure out all that. And it's this uh, man wearing all black coming in on a horse. And then Lawrence's guide at the kind of last second runs to get his pistol. But the guy shoots him down before he can shoot at him. So the guide is now dead. And Lawrence is kind of pissed off. And the guy dismounts. And he takes off his the cloth that was covering his face. And it is the actor Omar Sharif, who's uh, very big at this time. And... Who we'll also see in Dr. Zhivago. Oh, who is Dr. Zhivago, correct? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. Spoiler. <laughs> for the for the actor who <laughs> plays that role. Uh, <laughs> from a movie from the 60s. Nothing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pop point. Yes. Oh, spoiler alert for the podcast. We're spoiling the podcast that Omar Sharif, Omar oh, Sharif right. plays Dr. Zhivago. But yes, and, and, and I also like the reveal in the movie is actually more about the reveal of the actor because after that, it's like, yes, that's an important character in the movie in the sense that he's a person in this world who is very skeptical of Lawrence's presence as a white man and a European and uh, skeptical of his motives and everything. And then throughout the movie, again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. He does kind of come to respect Lawrence and the two become pretty good friends, I would say. And so this is kind of the reveal, reveal of that character. And he kind of just goes off, says, hey, you're welcome to drink my well, but that guy wasn't. And what's funny, too, is, so Lawrence, like, why would you kill him? I was like, the dude was pointing a gun at him. Like, if if uh, Sharif, yeah. who's, <laughs> ironically, whose character's title is, like, Sheriff or Sharif, like, it's, like, it's almost, it's spelled yeah. differently. It's, like, Sharif is playing a Sharif. Like, it's actually kind of confusing. Yes, I think it's more like a title. Right, right. right. So the actor Omar Sharif is playing yeah. Ali Sharif or something like that. And it's, but yeah. it's, yeah, it's more like a title than a name. We'll say Sheriff. <laughs> so he just kind of rides off. They run into each other again later when, yes, he does run into a British officer who then takes him, like you were saying, to Prince Faisal, played by Alec Guinness, Obi Wan Kenobi himself. Yes. Yes, in brown face. Yeah. So yeah, that <laughs> which, and that's that's one of those things where like you know, is it problematic today? Yeah, but like it was 1962, and it, it is actually a really good performance. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not um, disrespectful. So yes, you, you obviously we talk we get into the origins of of blackface. That was initially initially done in a mocking and very insulting way and this was not meant to be disrespectful at all it's just you wanted it you had a your part you wanted played right it was they wanted them to look like you know the actual yeah. guy and, and this this gets into a whole tangent too because i do i, I i'm kind of torn i think obviously yes if you need a say an asian character you hire an asian actor it gets season to make common sense or like right here if you're doing a arabic prince you hire an arabic actor they hired omar sharif who's egyptian to play an arabic character right. so that makes sense but at the same time i think the flip side of it and the way they saw it 50 plus years ago was an actor can play anything so alec guinness can do a very good job which he does playing prince faisal here and then anthony quinn who made a whole career playing all different ethnicities. He plays another one here, too, with kind of actually kind of a very broad, false nose even on and everything. But again, he he was also in that movie The Messenger as uh, Muhammad's mm-hmm. uncle or, or something like that. So he's, I think, I think, kind of jumping all over the place here, but I think Anthony Quinn is like half Mexican, half Irish or something and just kind of, and has and played lots of different things, yeah. I, yeah, something so, like that. Yeah, H- Hispanic. I just saw on the uh page for uh faisal one of his titles is uh grand sharif of mecca and which is so a, a, a sheriffate basically sheriff or sharif is a is the arabic word for noble. okay okay so it is a title right when they, so when they say like you know sharif ali that's like the noble ali. okay and it's just then and well, I'm sure it's then the same origin for omar sharif's last name his last name itself just kind of right. comes from that same origin Yes. Yeah, yeah, which is interesting. So basically, they they kind of get into a little bit of things, the discussion of things we've already talked about as far as 
you know, what do you see for the Arab people? And the British officer is already there, uh, has one plan. And Lawrence kind of, again, because he doesn't really care about rank, just kind of pipes up and says, I think you should try to take Aqaba because it's an important position for the Turks and it's going to be lightly defended and they won't see it coming. And you could actually gain a huge advantage by doing it. And the British officer is like, basically, hey, that's not your place. You need to shut up to about making these kinds of ideas. And they do end up, I guess he gives me just 50 men, which seems crazy to go try to take a defensive fortification with 50 men. But so and this is this is something else that is another example of something that's kind of exaggerated yes. for the movie is the battle at Aqaba, which I mean, the, I think, you know, the more impressive part of that, that part of the story is them crossing the uh, Nefu Desert because it's 200 miles across open but desert. There, again, it looks like in real life they right. kind of circumvented him for the most part, whereas the movie sends them directly through it. No, they, I mean, they, they, did, they had to go directly through it because they, they just basically are, are walking up. So if you, again, if we're, if we're looking at the map again, if you start at Yanbu or just outside of Yanbu where uh, Wadi Safra is, where he's first talking to Prince Faisal and convinces uh, Sheriff Ali to go with them, it's basically, you know, draw a straight line from there 200 miles to Wadi Rum, which is just east yeah. of Aqaba. And that's the route that they went. I well, mean, as far as the worst part of the desert, though, that, I, I guess what I read, it said that the dangerous, impossible conditions that the movie lays out for us were not necessarily what they actually had to go through. Like, they did go through the desert, but not like the life-threatening, right. it's impossible to do kind of version is what I understood. Yeah, it's just, it's still impossible. Oh, no, it's like a 200-mile camel ride. That's true, that's true, and they, which is why they didn't see it coming. Yeah, but the actual battle itself um, is heavily dramatized in the movie. The actual battle itself took place out, actually outside of the city. And a funny kind of uh, thing that they changed for the movie, like in the tent, the other British officer is, you know, specifically mentions the Navy and says, oh, yeah, the Navy's not coming to Aqaba, bro. Like they got other stuff to do. Don't even think that you're going to get any naval support. And in real life, the Navy was at Aqaba doing a coastal bombardment, basically, of the city while Lawrence and the Arabs attacked from the land. Like, and, you know, the other scene, you know, later where the general's like, who told you to take Aqaba? Like, you know, nobody told you to do that. Why why didn't you tell us you were going to do that? Like, that was all completely made up for the movie. Like, that they, you know, they they knew, they signed off on the plan, uh, and they even helped him uh, by providing them that naval support. And then also, too, when the movie actually has a really cool thing, because then after they take Aqaba... He basically says, I have to go to Cairo to tell them what happened because no, they won't actually believe me otherwise. And so he basically he gets all the way to Cairo with a servant. He's in the bar, and that's when he tells everybody. Well, obviously, they knew well before that that he had taken Aqaba, and he did, did go back to Cairo afterwards, but they knew long before he got there what had happened. So again, the movie kind of dramatizing it, yes. but not in, a, not in an inappropriate way. It's not like they drastically changed the whole events. They just made it more interesting, no. which, which is within the realm of what they tend to do so okay i do want to lay out the right. geography here so everyone's okay. kind of familiar with it i think intuitively even though you don't necessarily know what stuff is called so basically the middle east is technically mostly in what is the continent of asia because africa kind of, kind of ends at egypt and then kind of turkey kind of leads into europe and that gets a little vague there too there's not necessarily hard and fast borders that are always made up by humans but there's that little chunk of egypt that kind of goes off onto kind of right next to Saudi Arabia and Israel there. And that's the Sinai Peninsula. So it's kind of an oddly shaped thing. It's kind of this little arrowhead shaped piece that kind of points down to the Red Sea and has two gulfs on either side of it. So Africa does actually touch the Middle East. Well, yeah, basically directly you you can drive straight from Cairo to Baghdad if you wanted to. Uh, geographically speaking anyway it, it, it is all land there and then the Suez Canal is what connects then the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea on the west side of that because that's the Gulf of Suez and then Aqaba which is what we're talking about in this movie is at the northernmost point of the Gulf of Aqaba uh, that again le- leads into right. the Red Sea and then 
which is in it's in modern day Jordan, but it's kind of where Jordan, Israel, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia all kind of touch exactly. right there, and not the and not even just like kind of like right right there. Like it's less than two miles yeah. from Israel. It's less than ten miles from Egypt, and less than ten miles from Saudi Arabia. So again, now that's not the, how the borders were in 1916 when we're when we're looking at it here. But just as far as where that is, it's in a very very important and a hotly contested location. And so this, within the film, when the Arabs, with the help of Lawrence, and of course, like you're saying, in real life, with the help of the British Navy, take Aqaba, it's definitely a big blow to the Turks and a big boon for the Arab revolts going on and their idea of kind of advocating for themselves and this whole idea of an Arab revolt within the ever-collapsing Ottoman Empire. So that kind of brings us to about the halfway point in the movie, right? Is that about the time they go to intermission or is about the time he kind of comes back? I I believe so, yeah. And then from a movie standpoint, the one kind of big scene we left out, which actually I didn't look to see if this particular incident was historic or not. So where he finally gets uh, Sheriff Ali's uh, respect, they're kind of, again, they're desperately trying to get through the desert. They have this big, long stretch with, with no water. Again, this is probably exaggerated for the film. But they kind of get to where they see the, they're finally going to have water here soon in a little bit. They're almost there. And one guy is just kind of out of it or is basically going in the wrong direction and just kind of off missing. And Lawrence is like, I'll go save him. And Sharif always like, that's suicide. He's dead. Let him go. And Lawrence, ever the stubborn person, says, nope, I'm going to do it anyway. So kind of a famous scene in the movie is he goes back and saves the guy and they, they kind of, you know, it takes forever. They assume he's dead. Comes back with the guy. Sheriff Ali basically said, or basically just, you can just see the change. He's like, he was kind of, you know, he didn't hate Lawrence, but he was just kind of skeptical of him and his motivations and everything. He sees him accomplishing this, saving this guy, and is just kind of in awe. And he's starting to become a little bit of a folk hero to the Arabs as this kind of white European who does seem to side with them. And they, they, they're definitely kind of, he's just kind of this little, oh, mascot almost for him is is this lawrence of arabia as he later becomes known as so that night even too as lawrence is recovering and just like, kind of conked out ali burns all his european clothes and the next day they present him with kind of the arab linen robes and everything as basically you're you're you you earned it dude you're one of us now so it's very a very very cool moment and then the follow-up is because they're trying to bring together all these disparate arab tribes to unite and fight the turks there's a, a skirmish, and the group from, I guess it's kind of from Ali's tribe, kills someone from Anthony Quinn's tribe, because I'm not going to attempt to say that character's name. Yeah, it was one of the, uh, yeah, one of Ali's guys kills one of the Hawatai, yes, which yes. is uh, Anthony Quinn's guys. Yes. So to kind of appease everybody, basically, if one group retaliates against the other group, like it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill the whole revolt. Uh, before it even gets started, they're not going to be able to take Aqaba, um, and and basically they're you know they're they're going to dissolve you know back into their individual tribes. And so Lawrence basically asks one guy, he says, "Hey, if this guy dies, is that gonna is you know is 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 your you know the debts even?" And he's like, "Yep." And he goes and asks the other guy, he says, "All right, as long as nobody from their tribe kills anybody from your tribe, are we good?" And he's like, yep. And he's like, okay, well, then then the only course of action that satisfies all of that is if I be the one to carry out the execution. And then it turns out that it's Kazim, the guy that he saved in the desert, yes. which I don't know if that if that connection uh, happened in real life. But the actual execution itself is based on a real oh, event okay. where Lawrence T. Lawrence was forced to execute one of sheriff ali's tribesmen in the desert right before they were going to uh take Aqaba. okay so i could definitely see that maybe the first part was was fabricated to basically heighten the tension of of this moment because otherwise it's it would seem a yeah. lot more it was even more ruthless or callous or yeah there's actually uh there's an interview with peter o'toole where he's i guess he he met somebody who was there at that time and uh said that it was kind of a pretty traumatic experience, you know, which you can imagine because uh, basically he's trying, they they had the guy at the bottom of a well and Lawrence kept trying to shoot him, but he kept missing. Oh. And so it was like this, 
it ended up being this like drawn out thing and it I, apparently it uh it affected T. Lawrence for the rest of his life that that event did. So when we come back from intermission, and here, here's where I get I get a little confused on just kind of the geography and the, and everything. So basically, it's just it's just more of Lawrence going back, helping the Arab revolt. They derail a Turkish train, and again, plot wise, it's kind of just pretty simple in the infighting, and they end up kind of going for Damascus, and the, and again, there's the whole idea of the here's where the Sykes Pico Treaty comes up, where like you said in real life, Lawrence actually was a lot more aware of it than he appears to be in the film, and in the film, he's actually very upset that the British are basically planning on betraying the Arabs and just kind of carving up the territory as the Ottoman Empire loses here. Um, there's an American reporter that's kind of following him around, and he seems to be just kind of an amalgamation, or, or it's, it's not an actual historical character, but he is based off of American reporters, and within the context of the film here, he's kind of what helps build this mystique of Lawrence of, the, of Arabia. I mean, it was definitely an interesting guy who was able to you know sell some papers and just kind of uh, build up. And a lot of what we know, too, is he wrote kind of when he got back, he did kind of serve as a writer and a lo- uh, wrote about a lot of his own exploits and kind of built up his own reputation. Um, and, and, he's, and his personality is kind of even debated then, too, because like, at the beginning of the film, they, you know, some people kind of knocking him as a self-promoter and stuff. And, and even in real life, there's some debate because he seems to be an introvert, but also kind of a arrogant introvert who liked being famous, which is kind of a... He, right. He, he's, an, he's like a, an introvert, but one that wanted to immortalize himself. And he is accused and in, in some places has been proven to uh, exaggerate a lot of his exploits. But that's and I, I don't want that to sound like I'm saying that he didn't do the things he said he did because he definitely did a lot. He was, you know, definitely was a super interesting, super right. influential, you know, had had just one of the most insane lives that I think anyone will ever have just because of, you know, where he was and the time that he was living in. But there are some things that he is. People who study him, uh, you know, say, oh, you know, he exaggerated this or this didn't happen the way he said it did or stuff like that. But uh, one of the things, uh, one of the notes that I have here when they uh, attack the train after they basically kill all the, the Turks on the train and uh, the Arabs are, are looting uh, the, the stuff from the passengers and, and uh, Lawrence is standing on top of the train car and there's uh, one of the Turkish sh- soldiers sits up and uh, shoots at him a couple yes. times. And he ends up getting killed by uh, Anthony Quinn's character. But the gun that he's using, the the pistol, is a uh, a Mauser C96, which a lot of people will probably look at that and say, "Man, that is a really weird looking gun. Where have I seen that before?" Uh, it's the it's the inspiration and the base for Han Solo's DL44 blaster pistol. So if you pull up a picture of a Mauser C96 and a picture of the DL44 from Star Wars. <laughs> You can see that it's Han Solo's gun is basically a C96 with a different, uh, like a little yeah. muzzle device and a little scope on it. <laughs> oh, interesting. I, I, I guess I thought you were going to go a different direction with that. I thought you were going to say it was like an anachronistic use of a gun that didn't exist in the 19-teens. But uh, no, it's actually the, the Star Wars reference. That's funny. So the other big battle that they're relating to here is when they, they take Damascus. And yes. so it actually ends up being within the movie. And I'd be, I'd be curious to see what you had found uh, in, in real life wise here. So basically in the movie, they're trying to race the British there. So the idea is that they feel like if the Brits get to Damascus and take it first, the Arabs are going to lose any leg up they could potentially have for establishing their own autonomy and their own nation. So, yeah. So that part is real. So even though Lawrence knew about the Sykes-Picot agreement beforehand, he thought that if he got the Arabs to Damascus before the British and they took Damascus, that they could use it as a kind of a bargaining chip to force a renegotiation and get their own state because he knew that the Brits didn't want to give the Arabs their own state. However, just another example of something that's changed for the movie, but also something that apparently T.E. Lawrence himself kind of pushed is the fact that the uh, or the notion that the Arabs were the first ones to Damascus, like in the movie, right? The Arabs get to Damascus and take it before the Brits do. In reality, the first unit to basically drive the Turks out of Damascus was the uh, Australian 10th Light Horse oh, what? <laughs> from 
from Gallipoli. Yeah. Now the same, the same exact from the movie Gallipoli. But it was like, was it the same unit that was actually over in Gallipoli earlier? Yes. Yes. The tenth. Yeah. Oh, tenth light horse regiment from Western Australia. So they weren't all wiped out at the end of the. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because they they went on to beat the first unit uh, into into Damascus. So Mel Gibson's character from Gallipoli could, in theory, have been a part of the taking of Damascus. Yes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> But and another thing that they show in the movie is the kind of uh, the tribal bickering that happens that, you know, they're like, it's kind of the, the movie's way of saying, oh, you know, the, these Arabs, they were just kind of doomed from the start, you know, even though they ended up taking Damascus, you know, they, oh, they weren't able to set up their government because they just couldn't put their tribal ways behind them, which is completely not true. Faisal actually ruled Damascus until like 1920. I think he was ended up being forced out by the French. But, I mean, for like three years, they had a hold uh, on Damascus and had a uh, an Arab government there. And he ended up being like the first ruler of Iraq as well, right? Yeah, so Faisal's full title is Faisal al-Awal ibn al-Hussein ibn al-Hashimi, which is Faisal I bin Hussein bin Ali al-Hashimi. So he's the first basically like modern king of Iraq, which interesting uh, Wikipedia side note. Seven clicks to get from Faisal the first of Iraq to Saddam Hussein. So, like, are they related, or you mean just? Uh... No, 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 no. They're okay, not related, so. but like okay. king, king of Iraq to you know, down to prime minister, and then you know a couple gotcha. clicks later. As far as how in. many rulers of Iraq? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yes. interesting. Uh, which yeah, it's always fun to kind of do that through the clicks there. So again, this is Alec Guinness's character. He, he interesting guy, and in how he. Basically, obviously, he was, you know, an Arab nationalist, but at the same time, they talked about, and this, this was not in the movie at all, you talked about, on the, on the, again, on the Wikipedia page here, where he almost defected to the Turks at one point before kind of realizing, okay, that's probably not the best idea, and and staying with, yeah. with the Arabs, and, and just, just a very complicated life that this guy uh, lived, kind of going from, obviously, under Turkish rule as just part of the the Ottoman Empire to then becoming a king, literally, and uh, ruling in the early days of, I guess, the post-Ottoman Middle East, which is, which is like you said, it is the British, British just kind of carved it up and with the French, and everybody was trying to get theirs, and they, basically, the, the, the justification it looks like they use, and I guess this is probably part of that Sykes-Picot agreement, is they feel like these countries, having lost their autocratic rulers, needed a buddy, and so and that's like that's how they were trying to spin it. Okay, okay, the British will be the buddy of this these areas. The French can be the buddies of these areas, and we'll kind of help you through this transition. But obviously, in reality, it was all kind of just about raping their resources, right? Yeah. Well, obviously, it didn't hurt that the their buddies had a bunch of oil that they wanted to have. But well, we can just we can just talk about this yeah. now, I guess. So the Sykes Pico Agreement, I have like a whole page okay. of notes on it. It's named for uh, Sir Mark Sykes and Francois-Georges Picot, which is a British guy and a French guy. And it's a 1916 agreement between France and England with Russian approval. So basically, it was their agreement on how they were going to carve up the uh, Ottoman Empire after World War I was over. So France got Lebanon which at that time, the, the area of land that they got was kind of like where Lebanon is now and then like southeastern Turkey and like northern Syria and northern Iraq. And then England or Great Britain got the port city of Haifa, but Palestine, which is modern day Israel, Palestine was actually going to be a joint combined control area between UK, Russia and the French and then the Russians got control of Istanbul and uh, Anatolia. And then they did have a, I'm doing air quotes here, sovereign Arab state in Syria, but it was under French protection, which is also in air quotes. (laughs) Basically, French controlled uh, Arab Syria. They controlled Damascus. But yeah, so that's that's how the Sykes-Picot agreement kind of carved up that area. But it they took no considerations for uh, ethnic differences between people that lived in different areas, no considerations for uh, religious differences. They just kind of drew lines on a map with literally zero knowledge of the cultures 
and the people in that area. And uh, it led to basically a hundred years and counting of instability and violence in the region. It, and, you know, the agreement went against every promise that the Brits made to the people of the Arab revolt to, to get them to, to fight and, and die for them, basically. And, you know, it, it has huge geopolitical implications even to this day. For instance, ISIS cites the Sykes-Pico agreement as one of the motivations for their movement. So, yeah, and, you know, over 100 years ago, a few guys from from the UK and France drew some lines on a map. And, uh, yeah, now the Middle East is what it is today. Yeah, it's easy to forget. Again, again, we talk about the history always being connected to today. and But it's also, and again, not to ever justify anything that you know, terrorists tried to do, but as far as generally speaking, animosity that the Middle East might hold towards the West, it's hard not to see where it comes from, where they were just kind of mistreated, you know, first here by the British and the French, and then, you know, and we probably won't really, won't really go into it in depth with our podcast here, but just with, you know, you get over into Iran, which isn't even part of this, it really is, then, you know, we take it upon ourselves to institute regime, regime change and overthrow the Shah of Iran in the 50s. And it's just like, of course, that's going to cause beef and people are growing up with the knowledge that this other country and people that have nothing to do with you at all are trying to just change everything about your i mean just again imagine the roles reversed in a situation like this where okay after the civil war spain came in and decided that yep here's how we're going to draw the boundaries of the united states and this is what's going to go on and uh we're going to keep a heavy presence and kind of always have our thumb in your business and we're also going to be probably pretty upset with uh spain going forward and screw those spaniards and all their meddling over here and you know what we're probably not going to treat them very well or feel very kindly toward them and that's basically what's happened with with the middle east and again, not to just justify any acts of violence, but as far as where the animosity comes from, that's where, that's where it comes from. Right. It's it's not for no reason. Right. It's not because they're they're just bad. Right. Or people say like, <laughs> oh, they hate us for our freedom. It's like, well, that and the kind of just you know ruining their lives thing. Yeah, yeah. For the for the last hundred years, they've they've had to deal with this the violence and instability uh, in their part of the world, and it's. You know, very arguably and pretty provably, our fault. I mean, for crying out loud, you're in Afghanistan right now. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> uh, yeah. No comment. Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, the one little thing I wanted to kind of touch on here, because I do think if they made Lawrence of Arabia today, you know, would it be 57 years later, I think they would go way more into Lawrence's sexuality because it does appear to me to be probable that he was homosexual. And there are a lot of historians and T.E. Lawrence experts that would agree with you. Yes, it, it, it seems, but obviously, obviously at the time, it would never be open at all. But what I thought was interesting even the movie in 1962, I think, makes a couple of hints. And not overtly, but at least opens up the idea. So the first is when he kind of just talks about how he's insubordinate sometimes. And he just kind of says, well, sir, it's just my manner. And just, again, that has nothing to do with sexuality, but just the idea that he acts a little different. And again, just maybe in 1962, him. But the other one is when he's captured by the Turks and they kind of strip him down and the Turk again, it's not necessarily how Lawrence reacts, but just the idea of sexuality in general when the kind of Turkish commander there seems to be eyeing him and kind of even just like not feels him up exactly, but it was just it was a little too intimate to be this kind of interrogation slash torture session. It seemed to be sensual in a way that I just found interesting, even before I kind of then saw afterward that uh, there was you know, questions about uh, Lawrence's sexuality. So I don't know, what, what's your take on that? Yes. So that town called Dira, and uh, basically it, the the true story is kind of not, not contested, but basically uh, Lawrence's account is that he snuck into Dira, just like he does in the movie, in disguise, trying to spy on the uh, the, the Turks there, 
and uh, ends up getting found out and captured. And uh, I don't think he states explicitly, um, like even in his book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, I don't think he explicitly states what exactly happened, just that he was sexually abused. Um, But even that, I mean, there's no like witnesses, right? Um, There's no no one to corroborate his account of the events. Um, And there are a lot of biographers and historians and, you know, T.E. Lawrence experts that they don't think that it happened or they they think that maybe something like it happened, but not the way that he says or that, you know, maybe he did have some sort of, uh, you know, homosexual encounter while he was there in uh, Arabia in 1916, but, you know, maybe just not the way that he he said it happened. But no one will no one will ever Correct. know because the only account that we have of that event is from Lawrence. So. And the movie obviously didn't want to go either direction with that. But I so I guess you would say right. though I was right, though. This was still a nod to that with how that guy was kind of yes. leering at him suggestively, I guess you would say. And they weren't going to go any farther right. than that in a movie from 1962 because we're still very much in the production code uh, era of Hollywood here. And, and it just didn't really fit with the overall story they were telling. I mean, just because you have a story about a character doesn't mean you need to deal with his sexuality. But just given the time period and how those, those kinds of things were dealt with, not just in 1916 when Lawrence was in Arabia, but then also in 1962 when the move is made. And you're kind of getting different layers of that's been, been dealt with in, in society. And so I thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah. And and there's other people who think that, you know, because Lawrence like seemed to have a kind of uh, an open mind towards uh, homosexuality and didn't necessarily think it was like, you know, disgusting that maybe he himself was gay. Oh, right, right. And I didn't even look. Was he married or anything? I don't I don't know that either. He died relatively young, though, of course. Uh, It doesn't look like it because he died not like very long after yeah, this 1935 right but i mean he was only like in his in his 40s yeah. 46 so let's uh give me a rundown of his life after the war if you have that handy if not i can look it up uh so it looks like he went back to uh the uk i don't think he ever returned to arabia at least not in any uh official capacity he joined the raf under a fake name uh, under the name John Hume Ross to try and be a uh, a pilot. But he, once they found out who he was, he wasn't allowed in. And then he tried to join the Royal Tank Corps under the name T.E. Shaw and uh, was unhappy, kept trying to get back into the Air Force, and he was eventually uh, let in. And then he got stationed in uh, Karachi and Miram Shah, which are both in Pakistan, but at the time that was India. Oh, <laughs> So it says here he was there until 1928 and he was forced to return to Britain after rumors began to circulate. He was involved in espionage activities, probably because he was involved in espionage activities. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, could be, could be. Um, Oh, the one thing we haven't mentioned here yet. So even the name Ross, it actually ties into. So they mentioned it in the movie that he was born out of wedlock. Uh, Sharif uh, Ali or whatever is uh, confused that he uh, had a different name from his father or whatever. And But no, in re- in real life, his parents weren't married. It's interesting too. I thought, so the name Lawrence, so I just kind of assumed that, oh, his parents weren't married. And so if he doesn't have his father's last name, that his mother's last name was Lawrence. But no, it sounds like that she herself had questionable parentage. And it's the Lawrence family who may have been his mother's father but even that was uncorroborated. But it's at least where his parents got the name to, to give him. So I thought it was interesting when you had the kind of the bastard child to give him a surname that's neither parent's name. And it's just something we wouldn't do today. But again, naming conventions and stuff definitely changed over the decades. And I thought it was interesting that the name Lawrence was not his mother's name or his father's name. Another event from his post-war years, honestly, he at the time might have been more famous for this than anything he did in the war. When he got back, King George V wanted to give him a knighthood and he turned oh, it down. Oh, right, I saw that. Because of the way that uh, that the Brits basically reneged on their deal to let the Arabs self-govern and, and give them independence. And so he just said no. He said, I don't want to be a knight. 
you guys screwed over the Arabs. I'm just going to leave. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you think like the greatest honor that they give. Yeah. That's such a huge deal. And I, I don't think I know that that's a huge deal, but like not I'm being British. Right, right. I'm not British. And for a British person to do that is just I, I don't even know if we have something that would be, you know, equivalent. OK, final thoughts, because I do need to move us uh, to the end of the episode here. So it's I think Lawrence of Arabia is such a good movie. It's endlessly rewatchable. Some people might think it's a little slow, but you just have to appreciate like the shots, the huge landscapes. They're not doing any of that in front of a green screen. True. It's all, you know, when they're standing, you know, they, they have a shot and, it, you know, it looks like there's hundreds of miles of desert around them. It's because there's hundreds of miles of desert around them. Yeah, True. the uh, performance by Peter O'Toole is basically unparalleled. I can't say enough good things about this movie. It's just it's so good. I can't recommend it enough. I think it's super important, and it's it's just a good movie, even if it was fiction. And Pedro O'Toole, man, I I, I almost even forgot because I I love him in Beckett, especially in Liner Winter Two, but especially in Beckett, and you almost forget that it's the same actor. It's, yeah. it's such a different performance, and like I literally forgot it was the same person. Like not like if you ask me who was the star of both, it was, oh, Peter O'Toole, oh, Peter O'Toole. But like when you're watching the movies, you completely forget it's the same guy. And again, just kind of another props to Peter O'Toole there. Uh, and again, especially I said, it's not one of my favorite movies. This is definitely a movie you could just have on indefinitely in the background and it would never bother me. I could just always have that music playing. The, like you said, the beautiful scenery. I'd probably stop and watch some scenes. But if Lawrence Arabia just kind of played on a loop, of course, you'd only get through it a few times a day, and uh, right. <laughs> uh, like twice. But uh, yeah, it, I would say it's endlessly rewatchable, and you should definitely check it out. And we are going to stick with World War One for the next week or so here, and we're going to get more into what people traditionally think of when they think of World War One is the trench warfare. So next week we will be right on the Western Front with the 1930 Oscar winner for Best Picture, All Quiet on the Western Front. 